there's so many possible futures that we could currently choose from. G'day, and welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happier, healthier, and more ethical life. Our society puts a lot of emphasis on smarts, but not enough on wisdom. So this podcast seeks out wise people who can share their insights on passion, grit, love, and empathy. We'll discuss everything from sport to parenting and hear the stories of some of the world's wisest souls. If you enjoy the podcast, let your friends know so they can share the insights. Now, let's dive in to today's conversation. When they come to write the history of the present time, Toby Ord might be one of the figures that is most lionised. A 40-year-old Australian-born philosopher at Oxford, he's just written a book called The Precipice, Existential Risk and the Future of Humanity. Toby trained at the University of Melbourne, at Balliol College and Christchurch College at Oxford, uh, and uh, is a founder of Giving What We Can, a society whose members pledge to donate at least 10% of their income. Toby's given more, and we might talk about that, uh, towards charitable causes. He's a key figure in the effective altruist movement, but he's moved an interesting path to get there. Uh, trained as a computer scientist, uh, published uh, not only in journals like Ethics, but also the Journal of Applied Mathematics and Computation. He's somebody who is extraordinarily well, well read, uh, and The Precipice is a fascinating book, which I would uh, implore anyone interested in the long term to explore. But maybe you're not interested in the long term. So let me ask Toby, uh, why should we be interested in long-termism? Well, I think that uh, if, we, if we think back about humanity, I mean, that's what I'm really trying to get people to think about here, uh, to think about themselves, you know, not just as what do I do uh, or what does my community or my country, you know, what should we do or even what should everyone alive today do, the kind of global perspective. I want to get people to, to think even broader than that, intergenerationally, and to think about this kind of perspective of humanity. So our, our species, Homo sapiens, has been around for about 10,000 generations. There have been a, about 100 billion people who have come before us, and they've worked together over these generations. Uh, if I look around me, uh, everything uh, that I can see, except perhaps my, my own body, uh, has been the product of innovations that have been built up over these hundred billion lives. Uh, and it's, if you really think about it, it's kind of, it's amazing to, to, to contemplate how much thought and, and successive series of kind of improvements have gone into all of these things to, to produce almost everything that we, that we see and touch. And I feel really grateful uh, to these people um, over these 10,000 generations. And if we can, can survive, uh, there's no reason why we couldn't have 10,000 generations more. Uh, the, the typical species lives about a million years, and we've lived about 200,000 years so far. And that, that puts us, you know, something like at our adolescence. Uh, we're we're just, just old enough and powerful enough to start really getting ourselves in trouble, but not yet wise enough to make sure that we don't. I think that We've entered this time now where we are powerful enough to put this whole future at risk. And if you think about that, if, if we're the ones who, who drop the baton uh, and succumb to, to some kind of 
existential catastrophe, something that destroys our entire future potential, whether that be extinction or a permanent collapse of civilization from which we could never recover, that we would be the worst of all 10,000 of these generations. That's one way to look at it, kind of thinking of the past and thinking of, of what we owe to all these people who've, who've built up this, this world we have today and to this kind of duty to pay it forward, perhaps, to, to countless more generations to come. Or also, sometimes I'm even more inspired if I think about the future mm. uh, and these millions of years to come uh, and everything we might be able to achieve, how we could, we could last for an extraordinarily long time, perhaps hundreds of millions of years or more, and that we could, uh, we could reach beyond the Earth to the billions of other planets in our galaxy or beyond. Uh, and what could we do with that canvas? You know, what could we do with this time and, and space at our disposal? There's so many possible futures that we could currently choose from. Uh, and quality of life uh, for all of the kind of ups and downs that we have on a, you know, every 50 years or, or on that kind of time frame, there have been really notable improvements. You know, our lives are, tw- are twice as long as they were 200 years ago. Uh, and there's still room for a lot more improvements of that kind, still injustices that we need to correct, uh, still uh, ways to, to make our lives so much better. Uh, so I think that, that there's really hope for the quality of life to be absolutely great over an immense duration and scale uh, and achievements that we could do over millions of years. You know, we, we could fully understand the, uh, the basic laws of the universe, the kind of fundamental structure of things, uh, and we could make, you know, truly just societies if, if we choose to. Uh, so I think that Almost everyone who will ever live is in this future, uh, and almost all our greatest achievements are yet to come. And so when, it, when I realize that it's possible that we could lose all of that, uh, it makes me think this is, this is one of the most important things of our time to deal with. So we can all appreciate the uh, well-being of our children or our grandchildren, but things start to get a bit abstract when we imagine generations who will never meet. Uh, uh, how do you try and crystallise that for uh, for people who say, well, uh, you know, I, I don't think I ought to be giving my entire life to people beyond who, who, who I'll never touch when there are so many needy people here in the world right now? Or as, you know, the philosophical critique has sometimes put it, that isn't philosophy about making people happy rather than about making happy people? Okay. Uh, yeah. Good. Good questions. I, th- I think there's a combination of things going on there. You know, some of it is psychological. Um, how does one expand one's empathy? Uh, and some of it is is philosophical. Should one's empathy be expanded? Would that be a mistake? Uh, so I think that that in terms of our psychology, uh, we are we're getting maybe better at this. It's still very difficult. You know, we've, we've evolved to deal with our, you know, emotional range, uh, thinking about ourselves and the lives of, you know, a few dozen other people around us. And it's, it's very hard to think of, uh, you know, the suffering of, of millions of people, uh, in distant countries where, where they need our help. We are getting better at that at, at least at moments of crisis. Um, you know, if we, if we see on our TV screens uh, the suffering of people abroad, uh, then you know we, we do feel it, and, and and people do give very generously. Um, uh, an example would be uh, the bushfires. Um, 
you're really really seeing this. I mean, people people all through the UK were you know were were feeling in solidarity with Australia at that time. But when it comes to uh, the future, you know, we can't see the people. Um, you know, we 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 lose that vividness. Uh, and there's there's a uh, there's something in in the heuristics and biases literature called the availability bias or the availability heuristic that if if some information is particularly vivid, uh, then we can focus on it. But if it's more abstract, we have a lot of difficulty. So I think that we we need to think about uh, you know if if the the hypothetical person you're mentioning has managed to expand beyond thinking about uh, you know their immediate family and realizes that even strangers uh, who we don't share a polity with or you know we're not in the same country with them even if we do share a world uh that if they realize that they're you know equally worthy of our help because they're they're human beings with with emotional lives and relationships just like ours uh then i think that there's you know they're already halfway there uh to seeing that uh people who don't yet exist uh it still matters that we do things that will help them um and we know this in, in some cases occasionally you see extremely hardline philosophers, and, and it's kind of only a philosopher would think this, that, that people who don't yet exist don't matter at all. Um, that's a, a crazy view. Um, you wouldn't, for example, build kindergartens uh, if that was the case, uh, because you know the people who will benefit from them uh, aren't around at the time when you start building them. Um, but that, that would be, a, you know, if someone said that in the, you know, uh, in government, oh, actually, here's a, oh, we should stop building kindergartens because here's this kind of interesting philosophical reason. You know, everyone would think that that was crazy. Um, uh, as you say, we we can kind of think about a generation down the line, whether they're you know literally our children, or if they're kind of metaphorically our children's generation, even if they're not like actually related to us, uh, or our grandchildren. I think that you can kind of see that there's there's not much reason to to stop there. Um, it it seems to be one of these cases of you, you know when you see things kind of receding into the distance, and uh, you know people look smaller the further away they are. But we can, you know, use our rational faculties to realize that actually uh, they're not getting smaller. Uh, they're just the same size. Uh, I think we need to do something similar here uh, and to apply a bit of rationality to this whole process, not just go straight on emotional pull and to realize that these people of the future, there's no fundamental reason why they matter less than us. It would have been a, a tragic shame if the Romans had uh, had risked the entire future of the world just because we were, would live thousands of years later. Uh, you know, where where they're equally real as we are, and the people in two thousand years from now are are you know, uh, would they come to exist uh, just as real as well? I think someone's referred to this as being uh, futurism, a sort of uh, form of discrimination against people whose uh, uh, only sin is to uh, live a long time distant from ourselves. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that that there, there really is a neglect here, and there's also a really interesting. Uh, democratic uh, aspect to it, you know, political theory as well as uh, ethics, uh, where uh, if we think about our governments and the people who they govern, uh, you know, there's there's a fundamental principle of democracy that the people who are governed should get a voice uh, in what happens to them. Uh, there are challenges of that in some cases, uh, such as children and animals uh, who are affected by the choices that, that our states make. Uh, but a really neglected additional group uh, are the people of the future, uh, because most people who are affected by the actions that our countries take today, uh, particularly if you think of, say, climate change, are people who don't yet exist, uh, people who will come to live in the worlds that are shaped by our choices. Um, this could be for, for better or worse. Uh, if we, if we 
help the pros- long-term prosperity of the country, you know, maybe they'll be they'll be helped by our choices now. Or if we do things that are short-sighted, maybe they'll be harmed. But they can't simply vote. You know, we can't simply extend the franchise to these disenfranchised people. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we don't predictably know how they'd feel about some of our policies. Uh, so I think that there's interesting questions for the future about are, are there changes we could make to our democratic institutions to give a voice to these people? I think there's a really interesting question there. Yeah, and that's a sort of Edmund Burke uh, sort of view, I suppose, that uh, that notion that we're not only uh, considering the uh, giving weight to those in the past, but also considering the needs of the future generations. Oh, exactly. I mean, he had this uh, this concept of this intergenerational partnership, mm. uh, which which I think is 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 really profound. You know, this this thing I was talking about earlier uh, comes from Burke. Uh, that that this just how much we owe uh, to the previous generations, and that you know we can't just act. It's it's like in the same way that an individual can't act as if they're an island. You know. Uh, separate from everyone else, uh, because we need uh, these common bonds of society, uh, you know, are responsible for creating the kind of area we live in and the power that we have over the world. Uh, Similarly, our generation can't act like an island. Uh, We have to be aware of this kind of like fabric of continuity over time uh, and the need to keep it going. Yeah, it's interesting. Most conservatives seem to focus more on um, Burke's notion of, of feeling the weight of the past than the obligation that we have to the future, at least in, in how, how I read their interpretation of Burkeanism. So I, w- I wanted to, to move to some of the specific risks because uh, the precipice isn't just a, a discussion of ethics. It's also a, a terrific forensic analysis of a whole lot of the risks facing the planet. And, and the view you take is that if we are long-termist, then we need to be very concerned about ensuring that the future doesn't get snuffed out. Uh, and you think that uh, uh, overall there is uh, what a, a one in six chance of, uh, of the world being uh, uh, snuffed out in the next century. Yeah, I'm afraid that's right. Uh this is not a not a precise probability. Uh, you know, in the book, I, I have a whole page of disclaimers about you know what to make of these estimates. Uh, but it is, you know, I'm I'm someone who's been earnestly looking at this. Uh, I think that uh, I'm I'm certainly trying to avoid any tendency towards exaggeration. Um, for quite a lot of the risks, I point out that they're substantially smaller than people think. Uh, but this is this is me trying to encapsulate in a single kind of decision relevant number. Uh, everything I know about this topic and have learnt over the last 15 years or so, uh, that I would I would say that there's something like a five in six chance that we make it through this century with our potential intact and can kind of carry on and and uh, hopefully uh, uh, make it through the centuries to come after that. But something like a one in six chance, you know, a die roll, uh, that we, uh, that this is, this is the end and that this is where we fail. Right. So humanity playing Russian roulette with itself, essentially. Uh, so let's uh, let's start off with the uh, natural risks that you to- talk about. Um, uh, you put the odds of uh, an asteroid or comet impact uh, at uh, one in a million. Uh, tell us tell us about that risk and uh, uh, why, why it is why it's, why it's so large or so small, depending on how you look at it. Yeah, this is a, a really interesting one, but just be- not because it's large, <laughs> but because it's so well known uh, and so well studied. Uh, and yet, uh, it was very unknown for a, a lot of, or, you know, almost all of human history, including very recent history. It was only in uh, 1960 that it was conclusively proved that craters uh, were caused by asteroids. 
Uh, people thought that maybe they were all due to some kind of volcanism or something like that. Uh, but there were there were various meteor craters that were only you know that were only first conclusively proved uh, just in 1960, and then it was only in 1980 that it was shown that the uh, uh, that it was first kind of discovered that the dinosaurs could have been destroyed by an asteroid as well. And, and uh, of course, so that's the beginning of our species, right? I mean, that's the great irony about this: that but for that asteroid, uh, humanity doesn't evolve in the way we have. Yeah, uh, you know, almost certainly it wouldn't have. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it, it ultimately did seem to make room for mammals. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, after 1980, actually very quickly, uh, the astro- astronomy community really started to develop projects to scan the skies um, and they were given funding. They had a bipartisan funding in America and they uh, have done a tremendous job. They've found... Uh, at least uh, 95% of the asteroids that they think are in a size category, more than a kilometre across, which could potentially threaten uh, this kind of risk. Uh, the, the one that killed the dinosaurs was about 10 kilometres across. Uh, and they're pretty sure that there are only four 10 kilometre asteroids left in Earth-crossing orbits and that they've found them all. Uh, and uh, so because we've found so many, um, you know, at least 95% overall, and we know that the ones we've found are not on a collision path in the next few centuries. Uh, the risk is even smaller than uh, than you you might think from you know by default because we've happened to see that it's it's uh, you know we've checked most of the the cards in the deck and found that they're not they're not deadly. Uh, so they put you know the chance of a one kilometer asteroid hitting us in the next century at something like one in one hundred twenty thousand, uh, and then even if such an asteroid hit us there's you know, a pretty decent chance that, that we could uh, survive and recover. Uh, so I put the overall chance at about a tenth of that, uh, that it would be the end. Uh, so supervolcanoes have probably got 100 times less attention than asteroid collisions from, uh, from Hollywood, uh, but yet you say a supervolcano is 100 times as risky to us as a species. You put the risk of extinction from a supervolcano at 1 in 10,000. Well, what is a supervolcano super and, and why are they so dangerous? Yeah, so we're, we're used to, when we think of volcanoes, thinking of these cones, you know, like a, like a mountain, Mount Fuji or, or something. Uh, and it's hard to imagine how those types of volcanoes, you know, they could threaten the nearby towns, you know, like Pompeii. Uh, but, uh, but they, you know, how do they threaten the world? Well, a supervolcano is a much, much bigger type of volcano so big that it can't support its own weight and they've collapsed into these calderas uh, these kind of very large craters uh, beneath the uh, you know depressed in the earth's surface Uh, yellowstone uh, national park has one of the the biggest super volcanoes they are very rare um, and so you know if we come back to this availability heuristic uh, they're they're rare enough that they don't happen uh you know, we've had we've only had civilization for about ten thousand years, and there hasn't been a supervolcano eruption in that ten thousand years. Um, but uh, you know, the chance that that I'm saying here, you know, corresponds to, uh, you know, when I say one in ten thousand chance over the next hundred years, that's like saying it's about a one in a million year event. Um, so you wouldn't expect to have seen that in the last ten thousand years. Uh, we did have a well. I guess I, uh, we did have a supervolcanic eruption during uh, our species' lifespan, uh, which was the the Toba eruption, uh, which was I think seventy six thousand years ago. 
Uh, and there had been some some kind of hypothesis that this corresponded to a, a genetic population bottleneck in you know in the uh, the DNA record, uh, which suggested that maybe we had come very close to extinction at that point. That's now uh, I think not thought to be the case. Uh, the, the evidence didn't really check out for the the times corresponding. Uh, so therefore, we don't think that we came right to the brink with the Toba eruption. But it did, uh, you know, it buried uh, India under a huge layer of, of soot, and uh, and Africa was hit as well. You know, multiple continents were being and Toba's uh, in Indonesia, affected. right? So this is uh, yeah, that's that, that going out. That's long right. Way. So yeah, and even um, even if we look back, uh, you know, more recently, a couple of hundred years ago, there, there was a very big eruption uh, which caused the uh, the year without a summer, um, uh, where. Uh, where North America and Europe uh, had uh, had summer snows, uh, and uh, uh, yeah, uh, Lord Byron wrote about this. Uh, it inspired him uh, to write his his poem "Darkness" about the end of the world. Uh, in fact, that actually corresponded quite closely with the the first uh, uh, literary discussions about the end of the world. So I'm going to skip over stellar explosion, which you put at uh, one in a billion. So that uh, that takes your total risk of natural disasters at uh, just about one in 10,000 you say over the next century um, and then but, yeah and then we move to the uh, the uh, human caused uh, natural disasters ways in which we could basically end our own species rather than external factors uh, as a as a kid I uh, remember being taken by my parents on Palm Sunday marches and uh, uh, and actually chatting with friends about nuclear war in the 1980s with us all agreeing that the planet would be blown up at some stage uh, during while we were at school. Um, so this is the one that really loomed large for me. And, and I was struck in your book, the discussion not only about how nuclear war could happen deliberately, but also how close it, has, it came to, to happening accidentally. Uh, you put nuclear war at one in one in a thousand. So, so talk us through the risks now. Yeah, that's that's right. So this is there's, there's a combination of things here, which is how likely is it that we could end up with a full scale nuclear war, as opposed to um, say a few nuclear weapons being used, uh, which would not pose a threat to humanity, uh, but would be itself a tragedy. I mean, I should say that uh, a lot of these things I'm looking at would be would be tragic and perhaps even dark ages for humanity, but still fall short of the type of thing that would destroy our entire future. So the, the bar for what's being discussed here is incredibly high and, you know, very unusually high. So it doesn't mean, if, if something doesn't meet it, it doesn't mean that it's not immensely important. Uh, should should clarify that. But th- there's two aspects here. So one is the chance of a full-scale nuclear war, um, either arising from accident or from deliberate use. The accident is more likely than perhaps a lot of people would, would think, uh, and uh, there have been many extremely close calls uh, where, uh, you know, nuclear uh, nuclear weapons have been detected, you know, as incoming nuclear weapons towards uh, the U.S. and also towards the, the USSR. Uh, but it's turned out to be uh, faults either with the computer equipment or um, or in one case, it was like the flashing of light off clouds that was uh, that was making the sensors think that there were the flashes of launching uh, ICBMs. Uh, so there have been a lot of these cases uh, where things have got very close to calling a counter-strike um, based on erroneous information. Uh, and we currently are not in the middle of a Cold War, and a war with, say, North Korea um, would not 
at the moment, you know, threaten uh, humanity. Uh, they, they don't have that many weapons. Uh, but the, uh, the Russia and the US still have very big arsenals. Uh, they'd reduced them a lot from their peak, uh, particularly through, through treaties such as this New START treaty. Uh, but that treaty is, is due to lapse next year. And as far as I understand, uh, the, the current US administration uh, and, uh, and Vladimir Putin uh, neither have plans to renew it, um, such that they could then increase their amounts of uh, nuclear arsenal again, uh, which, which seems crazy to me. Uh, and a century is a long time. I'm trying to think of these questions over the next hundred years, like to think about how much risk there could be over, over a substantial time frame. Uh, and there's there's kind of every chance that there ends up being another Cold War um, or or hot great power war. Perhaps uh, perhaps China would be one of the great powers involved. Uh, so I think there's a long time. But then then it comes to the question about if we did have a full scale nuclear exchange, uh, would that destroy humanity either by making us go extinct or by making it impossible to recover? And I think that the impossibility of recovering is is actually a very difficult threshold. I think that. Uh, we, the evidence shows us that civilization uh, evolved, well, you know, or, or started. It began uh, at least seven times independently in different isolated regions of the world. So we know that going from no civilization back to civilization uh, is not that hard in a world somewhat like our own, unless there was some kind of permanent damage done to it or something. So, uh, so some people might think that that uh, while nuclear war may not threaten extinction, it threatens a very large chance of of this permanent collapse. I, I think that actually uh, that that's tricky to have happen as well. We're we're more robust than we might think. Uh, but also, uh, when you look at the nuclear winter literature, uh, it is very alarming. Uh, the the types of things they're talking about. It looks very bad, I should say. Uh, but for all of the the projections that maybe billions of people would die due to famines uh, because the the thing that that kills with nuclear winter uh, is not that we're all hit in some initial nuclear exchange uh, but rather uh, that that uh, burns the cities and that soot from these burning cities is lofted all the way up into the stratosphere where it can't rain out and through because it's above the clouds uh, and that it blackens the skies and and cools the world uh, such that the time between frosts in the summer is so short that you can't get crops to, to grow uh, and that this causes uh, massive food shortages. So that, that's the kind of mechanism we're talking about. But even the people who are looking at this don't uh, these days suggest that it, that it uh, would cause extinction or that that's a likely possibility at all. Uh, so uh, it looks like it would be an absolutely tragic event uh, and one that's well worth a lot of attention uh, on non-existential risk grounds as well. Uh, but, but for all that, uh, perhaps less likely than you might have thought uh, to destroy humanity. So how do we reduce that risk? Uh, I mean, you talked before about the expiration of the new START treaty, uh, but are there other creative ways of lowering the probability of, of nuclear war, either between the nuclear armed states or, or else the, uh, the sort of rogue regimes and potential terrorist groups that might get their hands on nuclear weapons? Yeah, uh, one uh, that I would recommend, uh, there's, there's quite a few different approaches out there. Uh, and I should say that it's, it's very easy to be a kind of, you know, uh, 
backseat nuclear strategist and and think you know what's going on. And uh, I'm as uh, tempted by doing that as as anyone. It is very difficult um, to actually get this policy right, because there are a lot of things where you think that they would be good, uh, such such as nuclear defense. Um, You'd think, well, that's a defensive technology um, to be able to shoot down incoming missiles, uh, so it would be good. Uh, but actually, it might make things more unstable and increase the chance of nuclear war for, for various well-studied reasons. Uh, so uh, so it, is, it is tricky, and it's quite possible that th- well-meaning things actually make things worse. But, but one of, I think, the, the most uh, robust policies that's, that's suggested on top of renewing these nuclear treaties, uh, New START, and also there's the Intermediate uh, uh, Nuclear Weapons uh, Treaty uh, that also should get re, you know, um, signed again. Uh, but as well as that, I would say uh, getting rid of this launch on warning uh, approach, which is also called hair trigger uh, stance, uh, where the idea is that uh, the nuclear weapons, uh, say, of the United States are, are set up such that uh, if, if uh, Russia were to launch a nuclear attack, they need, you know, while the missiles from Russia are still in the air, they need to decide whether to fire, uh, you know, the ones on the ground. And so this this setup uh, means that uh, you're much because more you're likely big, to end big up missiles a- could get destroyed, basically. Exactly. Uh, that, that's basically how this kind of thing works. Um, uh, and uh, it's uh, we're in quite an unstable situation with it. Um, it used to be the case that if they had a similar amount of missiles, they separate them far enough away from each other so that any incoming blast can only destroy one missile. Uh, and some of the incoming blasts won't destroy a missile. Uh, and so... Uh, in order to destroy your opponent's missiles, uh, you have to use more missiles than you destroy. Uh, so if they have a similar amount, then they would know that they could never actually uh, disarm the opponent with a first strike. Unfortunately, they developed a technology called uh, MERV, Multiple Independent Reentry Vehicles, where each missile contains uh, many warheads, which can then be separated out and hit multiple other missiles. And this kind of shifted the balance a lot in favor of attack. Uh, I guess if there was some way to outlaw Merv, uh, that would be fantastic. My guess is that it's it's very difficult to verify. Um, uh, but uh, it's an example of how kind of one additional technology can then really change the strategic situation. Uh, but it, I think that we could get rid of the launch on warning system. And there's a lot of nuclear experts who agree with that. Uh, and the idea would be that enough missiles would remain to create such a devastating response that it still wouldn't be worth doing the initial attack. It's not that you need to be able to credibly threaten to kill hundreds of millions of people in the opposing country. Uh, if it was just the case that they knew that uh, you know their capital and you know seven major cities would all be completely destroyed, that's enough reason not to do a nuclear first strike. Uh, so you know why do we need to do threaten a hundred times as much retaliation as that? Uh, and the nuclear submarines would always also survive the first strike and would be able to threaten kind of credibly some kind of counter-strike like that. So that's uh, that's one possibility is to get rid of launch on warning in order to uh, um, uh, to reduce the, uh, the accident risk because almost all the accidents that are talked about are to do with launch on warning, uh, meaning that before there's been a confirmed explosion on the ground, uh, you need to try to uh, to launch your your counter strike. So that that you know we're we're getting right into the heart here of like complicated nuclear strategy, uh, but uh, but I think that there would still be ample deterrence effect, uh, and you would remove a lot of this accident risk. So I think that's another you know an example of a, a technocratic kind of change in policy rather than just a we need more cooperation kind of uh, 
uh, hope. Yes, I really do feel as though uh, when you read uh, The Precipice, it's a bit like uh, a philosopher's version of a horror movie. Uh, the scenarios you paint are, 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 you move from one, one apocalyptic, abysmal scenario to another. It's, uh, it's really striking. Let's go on to another that uh, I'm sure many listeners would have been concerned about, uh, which is uh, climate change. Uh, we tend to think of climate change, Toby, as being something which is going to be very bad for the planet, possibly mean the extinction of certain species and the wiping out of low-lying Pacific atolls. Um, but it's not typically characterised as something that will end humanity. Uh, why should we place a, a one in a thousand uh, probability on the notion that unchecked climate change could indeed lead to, to the end of humanity? Uh, yeah, that, that's that's interesting. Uh, I find people have one of two responses to this this estimate. Uh, either your response, you know, how could it be as high as one in a thousand? Uh, or the other response of how can you dare say that the chance of it destroying humanity is only one in a thousand? Uh, and I think there's, there's actually surprisingly little uh, scientific discussion about this question. Um, so uh, there are groups such as Extinction Rebellion, um, where sometimes the extinction in the name is referring to the fact that we might be undergoing a mass extinction caused by humanity uh, of non-human species, and sometimes is is used and thought to mean uh, we're talking here about the extinction of humanity. Uh, so it has had a uh, recent rise in in thought. Similarly, uh, you know, with books such as The Uninhabitable Earth, which even though it doesn't really argue that the earth would actually be uninhabitable. You know, the name certainly suggests that we're talking about the extinction of humanity mm. again. And Bill McKibben's uh, so, so kind of, and uh, Martin Weisman's, yeah. uh, the, the, the work of the late Marty Weisman as an economist was pretty influential on me. Oh, I think it's it's amazing. Um, uh, both both on, uh, on tail risk for climate and also on uh, his work on... Uh, uh, discount rates. Yes, uh, which which uh, we could also come to if we wanted to. Uh, we but will. with with the cli- uh, with the climate change. Yeah, I think that uh, ultimately, if you look at the, the details, what I do in the section on climate change is to really look at the worst case scenarios. And um, when people talk about these feedbacks, they they talk about how uh, what if the permafrost started releasing methane and then that made things warm and it released more methane that made it warm more and release more. Uh, I tried to look at cases like the permafrost and the methane clathrates, which are the biggest carbon stores uh, that could undergo such releases, and to ask, you know, what happens if this kind of effect were to run to completion? How much carbon would be released? How much warming would happen? Uh, these things don't go on forever. Um, uh, there is a limit to to how much it could change. Uh, the, the Earth's climate has, has both these, uh, uh, these destabilizing feedbacks, where the more something happens, the more it keeps happening. But also it has some stabilizing feedbacks uh, where it becomes harder to push further away from where we are now. And there's a very complex interaction between them. Uh, but I, I looked at, at uh, the evidence about the most extreme events and I found that, uh, that the possibility of large numbers of degrees of warming, uh, you know, you often hear about two degrees of warming or occasionally four or even at extreme six. Uh, it does seem that we... Can, we can't rule out that there will be 10 degrees of warming or more. Uh, and so I think one of my conclusions is that that really that there are realistic chances of talking about a lot of warming, uh, more than, than people are really doing any analysis on at all. 
uh, in the tails of this distribution. Uh, but also, if you look at the types of mechanisms whereby people think that this could destroy humanity, um, it's actually quite hard to see how any of these mechanisms really could uh, be the end for us. Uh, so it's one of these cases, actually somewhat similar in some ways to nuclear war, which is also a form of climate change, but in the other direction, uh, where in both cases, <clears throat> it's, the effect is bigger than most people think. And yet it's hard to see <clears throat> how it could actually uh, destroy us. Uh, and the one in a thousand is more from the fact that I can only be 99.9% .9 sure uh, that it won't destroy us, uh, rather than uh, because there's a particular mechanism that I'm uh, exceptionally worried about. Yes, I mean, I think the, the point that Weitzman makes is that there, we might be uncertain not only about the science, but also about uh, the models we have for how CO2, high levels of CO2 uh, affect, the, uh, affect temperatures. And given that we're running an experiment that hasn't been run for at least 800,000 years, um, you just don't want to be that confident that you, uh, you, you can predict what's going to happen next. That, that's right. I mean, one simple way that, that I can put some of this is that, uh, that there's this climate sensitivity number, um, which is if we were to double our CO2 concentrations, how many degrees of warming would we get? Uh, and this number is commonly estimated at three degrees. Um, and it's been thought to be three degrees, uh, actually, ever since the year I was born. Um, uh, and the uncertainty around it, though, is quite large. And, uh, you know, in 1979, uh, they set the uncertainty to say, well, there's a two thirds chance that it's between one and a half degrees or four and a half degrees, uh, if you were to double CO2 concentrations, how much warming. Uh, but that is a factor of three difference. Uh, and it's not a 95% confidence interval. You know, people are saying it could easily be outside that range as well. And that range has actually stayed the same all the way until now, you know, for, for, for 40 years. Uh, so it's, it's shocking, actually, that for all of the science that's been done, uh, we're not able to actually reduce that range. Uh, so what they're saying is that there's something like a one in six chance uh, that it's more than four and a half degrees if we were to double CO2. And then uh, it, there's also a question about how much will emissions go up? How much will the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere go up? Uh, it's certainly not beyond the bounds of plausibility that there could be a couple of doublings of CO2 levels in the atmosphere, leading to getting something like, uh, you know, three degrees and another three degrees of warming of six. Or if it turns out to be greater than four and a half degrees, then you'd get greater than nine degrees of warming in that situation. Uh, so if you look carefully at the IPCC reports, they do sometimes talk about this, but very little. And it seems to me that uh, for all the effort that's going into climate change research, understanding these tales better uh, to know uh, as much as we can about these chances of extreme warming would be very good. And Martin Weizmann has uh, some of the best work on that so far. So I'm going to skip over your other environmental damage, mm -hmm. one in a thousand risk, unless uh, you, there's something burning you wanted to say on that, and and come on to it's it's. Oh, I'll just say that that it's it's my catch-all for all of the other types of ways in which humanity is expanding beyond perhaps uh, our normal capacities and doing unprecedented things to the environment around us. Uh, so it's not that, you know, I analyze a number of particular things that are going on. I suggest that those particular things aren't credible extinction risks. Uh, but we're doing so much uh, that unless we get that under control, uh, I feel that that it's uh, that, that there is more risk from destroying ourselves through some unknown environmental mechanism than, than we face, say, from these natural risks all put together.
Now your next number is 1 in 10,000, uh, the odds of naturally arising pandemics. Uh, I suspect uh, some listeners might have thought that was uh, uh, a bit too high if we'd been talking a year ago, but, uh, but now I'm guessing some people would argue it's a bit too low. Um, so in the era of uh, COVID-19, what do you have to, to tell us about the risk that a pandemic could ultimately lead to the end of humanity? Well, firstly, uh, we know that, that, that COVID itself is not going to destroy humanity. It's not going to destroy civilization. Uh, it, it's I think bad. that could be the first it, positive thing you've said in this conversation today, Toby. <laughs> it's, well, uh, maybe my, my hopes for, for the future we could have if we make it through this time. Uh, but we, um, it, it is not going to destroy us. Uh, and uh, actually, I, I'm somewhat relieved and refreshed to see that uh, you know, I haven't encountered anyone who says that it will. Um, uh, so I guess maybe it's a sufficiently big event that it, it doesn't need any hyping up uh, and people haven't felt the need to do so. Uh, but it does help to remind us how vulnerable we are to pandemics. Um, and it also reminds us that if, you know, it is roughly uh, at an event, you know, as on the scale of the 1918 flu, um, it hopefully won't cause as much damage as the 1918 flu because we've had 100 years of technological and medical innovation since then. But uh, if it was unchecked, it looks like that would be about the, the scale. Um, the, the 1918 flu, the estimates vary, uh, but it it's probably killed more than about 2% of people in the whole world. Um, so this is, this is huge. And it, it was the first really global pandemic that we know of. Uh, because before, you know, before the different, you know, before Columbus and before uh, the connection of Australia into, uh, into uh, Africa, Europe and Asia uh, with the crossings of the oceans, uh, these, we had kind of these multiple world zones that were disconnected and where, uh, where pandemics and things didn't cross from one to the other. But, uh, but by the time of 1918 uh, and in the wake of all of the troop movements for World War I, uh, it did really manage to reach uh, almost everywhere in the world. Uh, and uh, we are kind of seeing these types of rare events, but they're not that rare, you know. Uh, so one in 100 years means that if you're planning, say, your medical stockpiling for the next decade, you know, that you're saying there's about a one in 10 chance that you'll get something of that, of that scale. Uh, so it's exactly the kind of thing that's in the kind of ranges that you plan for. Um, and that's why uh, even though... Uh, various epidemiologists weren't predicting that, that, that a particular, you know, coronavirus will come uh, in 2020. They were saying that this is the type of thing that is uh, likely enough that we should be planning for it much more than we are. Uh, and they were right about that. Uh, but for all that, uh, we, there's this, when it comes to natural risks, there is a kind of comforting argument that if we look at the history of humanity, the 200,000 years of Homo sapiens, or 2,000 centuries, we've survived all of those centuries. So the risks can't be something like 1% per century from natural causes, or there'd be a vanishingly small chance we'd have made it as far as we have. Uh, and we can, we can also look at other species and find out that typical species last a million years. And so that's 10,000 centuries. So the, the risks to them uh, from natural causes can't be much higher than that. Uh, and so that's a comforting argument for many natural risks. It doesn't work as well when it comes to pandemics because there's a plausible case that the risk is increasing rather than decreasing. Uh, but we've also done a lot of things to help decrease the risk, such as our improvements in medicine, our understandings of uh, quarantine and epidemiology and so forth, uh, and just our generally improved healthcare services, things like ventilators. Uh, so 
Uh, overall, uh, we can't quite be sure, uh, but I put it at around about the level of the, the, na the natural risk, even though it is actually a somewhat human-mediated event. What's interesting then is you, when you move on to engineered pandemics, uh, bioterrorism, uh, you've got a, a 1 in 30 risk, uh, more than 100 times as high. Uh, given that um, bioterrorist attacks like the um, Amshrenko attack in Tokyo in 1995 have only killed relatively small numbers of people, why should we be much more worried about the future of humanity Far, uh, from from the standpoint of engineered pandemics compared to naturally occurring pandemics? Yeah, so it's a good question. Uh, and I'll, I'll say that the engineered pandemics includes a few different ways that this could happen. Um, there's uh, the case of scientists, uh, deliberately, like well-meaning scientists, making diseases either more deadly or more transmissible. Um, this does actually happen. Uh, and, uh, you know, a, a famous case is uh, Ron Fuchsia uh, making the bird flu, which had a very high lethality rate, but was not transmissible between humans. Uh, he wanted to understand, could it become transmissible between humans? Do we need to worry about that? How easy is it to happen? So how much effort should public health put into it? And so he did an experiment where he, uh, he made a version of bird flu that was transmissible between mammals. Uh, he used ferrets. Uh, which are often used as a stand-in for humans in respiratory medicine. Uh, so uh, that's an example of making a disease uh, at that point, um, you know, possibly the, the most lethal disease uh, ever, you know, as far as we know. Uh, I'm not saying that it is, but it's, you know, he went beyond what nature had created in that case and made something much, much worse. Uh, he did it in a, um, a, a BSL-3 enhanced lab, um, which is, uh, you know, it's good that he, he didn't, you know, do it just in any old lab, uh, but it, he didn't do it in the highest level of biosafety lab, uh, in part, as far as I understand, because uh, bird flu is not transmissible between humans, and that's one of the criteria for working on an agent uh, in a BSL-4 lab. Uh, but he made BSL a version of it that was transmissible. Level, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. Biosafety level four or three. So he actually made something, though, that was going to be transmissible if the experiment worked. So it seems kind of crazy that it was in this other level of biosafety. And even at the highest level, uh, we know that uh, uh, there's at least one confirmed case of uh, of leakage of a dangerous pathogen uh, creating an epidemic uh, in, uh, in sheep uh, coming out of a British lab uh, that was at biosafety level four. So even at the highest standards, we know that they leak occasionally. Uh, and it doesn't seem to me that, that we should be, you know, I don't think we yet have a facility which is robust enough that we should be working with this kind of like humanity, you know, threatening uh, disease agents in there. But for all of that, that form of engineered pandemic is not the stuff I'm most worried about. I'm most worried about some that either come from bioweapons, so state-based uh, development and, you know, with huge industrial power behind it and a lot of scientists developing uh, very nasty bioweapons, or uh, some kind of bioterror, such as uh, the Alm uh, Shunrikyo cult. Uh, one reason that they're particularly alarming, as an example, is that they had, as part of their, their plan, was to destroy all of humanity. Uh, whereas uh, the countries that are working on bioweapons, that's not normally their plan. Uh, you know, they want to use them as a somewhat effective weapon. It could become their plan if they, if for example, if some small regime uh, wanted to have an insurance policy uh, and say, look, we made this thing that we think could threaten the whole of humanity. Uh, you should definitely not invade. 
uh, or we will use it. Uh, and that, that's not that different to the kind of deterrence that went on with the mutually assured destruction in nuclear war. So it could be that a state would actually have reason to create something that could destroy humanity as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, if anything is a crime against humanity, surely uh, creating such weapons should be. Uh, but uh, but if you, if it comes to these these cults, and, and you mentioned that Aum Shinrikyo uh, didn't actually kill a very large number of people for all that they, or for all that was terrible about them. And, uh, you know, mercifully, that's right. Um, but they did have scientists working for them. Uh, they tried to create anthrax, uh, but failed to disperse it, or it was the wrong kind of anthrax, I think. Uh, they also created this nerve gas. And, uh, but the thing is that since 1995, uh, it's become a lot easier to do substantially more engineering of these weapons. Uh, so I, I think a couple of, of prominent examples uh, are that the technique uh, CRISPR uh, for doing uh, advanced uh, gene editing on organisms, uh, and also uh, the idea of gene drives, uh, which is a way of deploying uh, your modified organisms into the wild, uh, that both of these things were, were massive breakthroughs of the last decade um, uh, in biotechnology, uh, perhaps Nobel Prize level uh, breakthroughs. Uh, but you know, for, for all of human history so far, zero people had been able to achieve such things. And then, you know, just the very, the very best scientists were able to achieve it. But then how long does it take before an undergraduate could replicate it? Uh, the answer in both cases is two years wow. uh, before it was used in entries in science competitions. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and this is, uh, they're, they're now, you know, much more widespread as well. Uh, so you've got this issue, which is both the, the best thing about biotechnology is this democratization of the technology, incredibly rapid spreading out and proliferation of, of who's able to deploy it just a few years after, after it's invented. Uh, that's great when biotechnology is great, uh, but it's terrible when it when it has these these potentials to do bad things. And so the worry there is that, uh, you know, if you imagine there's a certain point in time when only one person can do this, uh, perhaps could uh, create an agent, you know, a pathogen capable of uh, infecting and killing everyone in the world uh, to like and incurably. Uh, then maybe, you know, a couple of years later, maybe thousands of people could do it, and then, then millions of people a few years later again. And this, as the set increases, you know, it's more and more likely to eventually hit someone who is in one of these cults um, and has these plans. Uh, so it, particularly when we're thinking of the next hundred years of technological development of this, and it's very hard to see how to actually develop effective countermeasures. Uh, so that's, that's why I'm, I'm so worried about that. So we're coming near the end of our parade of mm -hmm. uh, terrifying scenarios as to how the world could end. Uh, we've now we're now come to one that uh, I imagine you've been thinking about for a very long period of time, uh, killer robots. Uh, this notion that at a certain point uh, where artificial intelligence becomes smarter than humans because it's self-replicating, it just takes off. And uh, at, at that stage... Uh, there is uh, potentially a significant risk to humanity. Uh, you put this, uh, Toby, at a, a one in ten risk, which it's your your high, the the highest risk of any that you list. Uh, why should we be so worried about what you call unaligned artificial intelligence? Yeah, so I, I think the the easiest way to explain this um, is at quite a high level. Um, so uh, scientists. Uh, uh, you know, have been working on artificial intelligence for a long time, uh, about 60 years. 
Uh, and in the early days, their plans were, were very bold, uh, effectively to create something that could do everything humans could do. Uh, for then, for many decades after that, when, when it was turned out to be harder than they thought, the, the, you know, their sights were lowered to creating very specialized systems that could do a particular thing very well. Um, uh, but more recently, there's been a move back uh, that we've discovered incredibly powerful systems with deep learning. And there's been, you know, we're, we're in this kind of uh, AI summer where, you know, where development's going very quickly and there's a lot of funding. And there's a lot more attention back to creating very general systems. Uh, for example, uh, DeepMind created a system that could play a very large number of Atari games just from the raw pixels on the screen. It could, and the score, it could work out how to play the game better than a human uh, for a, a large number of different games. Uh, so it was a kind of a general system. Uh, and humanity, the, the reason that, that we've got to where we are, where other species in the world are at our mercy, uh, for, for better or worse, uh, is not because of our, our strength you know, or our speed. Uh, it's because of our cognitive abilities, our mental abilities. Uh, this is like what we think of as abstract intelligence, but also our ability to cooperate with each other and to exchange information so that we can kind of work together as a hundred billion people, you know, build in this world. And, but it's, it is our mental abilities though. And it is just these types of abilities uh, that, uh, that AI scientists are trying now uh, to actually uh, create as artificial intelligence. Um, sometimes it's called artificial general intelligence to distinguish it from the specialized systems. So uh, there was a big survey done of researchers in AI a couple of years back uh, to find out when they thought AI systems would be created that would uh, be as uh, able to do all the tasks that a human could do. And there was a lot of disagreement, uh, but the middle of the distribution was that there was a 50% chance of that happening uh, this century. Um, so, you know, there are certainly, it's not that hard to find scientists who think it will take multiple centuries, but it's also not that hard to find some who think it will take just a few decades. Uh, and uh, it, this actually is similar to my, my views before, before the survey was out, uh, but therefore I didn't feel the need to modify my view that much in light of expert opinion, because expert opinion was similar. And it turns out public opinion is actually similar as well. If you ask the general public, they give a similar range of estimates. Uh, so... Therefore, it seems uh, pretty reasonable to start with the, the, the idea that there's a, something like a 50% chance that during this century, uh, humanity will seed its crown of being the most uh, you know, mentally capable entity uh, in the world, uh, which was the kind of ultimately the reason that we got to be in this situation where we're in control of our future and our destiny as opposed to, say, chimpanzees, where it's humans who are in control of their destiny, not themselves. And so then you might say, well, what's the chance that we make it through this major transition to no longer being uh, the kind of autonomous entities in the world who are the smartest? What's the chance that we maintain control of our future? Uh, and I think that, you know, I think that even if, even if this transition happens, we probably will cont retain control of our future, either because we'll work out how to make sure that we can control systems that are smarter than ourselves, uh, and have them do our bidding, or because we'll make it so that these systems value the things that we value, including our own lives. And so in acting to build the world that's best for them, they build the world that's best for us. And these, these may be possible, but they're very difficult. Um, they're much harder than people had thought. Uh, and it's actually the scientists who are, who are doing the leading work on controlling 
advanced artificial intelligence systems and aligning their values with those of humanity. Uh, it's those scientists who are leading the alarm about this uh, and the concern that we, you know, that that we might be able to reach these levels of capabilities before we reach the ability to control them. Uh, so, I, you know, you could kind of break down my one in ten as saying there's a one in two chance uh, that we uh, develop such systems, and then there's only a four in five chance that we survive that transition. You know, so one in five chance that we don't, and thus a one in ten chance overall that. Uh, by the end of this century, uh, we are at the mercy of whatever we programmed into these artificial intelligences at the time of creation. Uh, and we're in that case, this kind of huge universe of possible pathways and futures that humanity could take, you know, what we could do with these millions of years and, and billions of worlds uh, would collapse to a kind of much smaller range of things as dictated by whatever it is, the values that we happen to have put into our intelligent systems at that time in this in this century uh which i think would be would be tragic yes and i'd urge anyone who thinks that uh, solving this problem is easy to uh, check out nick bostrom's book super intelligence uh, which uh through examples such as the uh, paperclip creating uh, robot uh it shows pretty vividly uh, how this could go wrong uh, you've got a final category of uh, unforeseen risks which i i quite like the idea that there are unknown unknowns out, out there um, do you do you have uh, how do we how do we think about unknown unknowns in a in a philosophical sense toby yeah it's it's not easy uh in general if you're enumerating things like this and then you're having a total uh you need to make sure your list includes everything mm. uh, or it doesn't make sense uh so you need a kind of catch-all category for things that 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 you hadn't kind of you know explicitly listed but the, the way that I think about this is thinking about uh, the risks that are on this list and how many of them or how likely would we have been to see them 50 years or 100 years in advance. That's clever. Uh, yeah. And so you can, you can see, for example, that nuclear war rose to being a very serious risk by, say, the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. Um, but in, you know, in 1862, uh, no one was, was thinking of that. Um, and even by, say, 1910... Um, you know, or something. Almost no one was thinking of this, and uh, so, uh, and you know, or that they only had very dim conceptions of the idea that atomic energy could get released, or something like that. Uh, so it was only really kind of visible in that case a few decades beforehand. Uh, and I think that uh, some risks are, are visible further in advance. Um, artificial intelligence is interesting. Uh, certainly, there had been some early thoughts on uh, the possibility of. A catastrophe due to artificial intelligence, uh, you know, 50 years before now, or even uh, even 100 years before, depending on what you count as being a prediction and what you count as just being an interesting story. Um, so, yeah, but it's by thinking about those kinds of thoughts uh, that that helps me try to estimate it. Combined with with two other aspects, I guess I should add. One is this this kind of very long-standing and robust trend towards humanity's increasing power. Um, uh, I, I put the existential risk in the 20th century as being really the first time that it exceeded the natural risk, because with the development of nuclear weapons, you know, we could threaten ourselves. And I put it at about 1% chance, one in 100. And then this century, I put it at about, you know, the next 100 years, say, at about uh, one in six. And if we don't get our act together, I don't really see much reason why it wouldn't increase again in the future as we develop more and more technologies of more and more physical power to transform the entire surface of this planet. 
Uh, that's one trend. But there's also the possibility that we get our act together uh, and that our wisdom catches up with our power, uh, partly because of, you know, arguments like these. And the I think that they're compelling and I think that there's uh, that they create a moral urgency to get our act together. Uh, and so I think that that we can actually kind of, you know, uh, bend that curve and uh, start to actually reduce these risks uh, over the future. Uh, and and I you know th- that's one of my one of my real goals in life is to try to help that as much as I can. Yes, I, I thought a nice example of those unknown unknowns was uh, was something that Daniel Ellsberg mentioned in his conversation with your colleague Rob Wiblin on the eighty thousand hours podcast, where he talked about the t- test of the first hydrogen bomb, where Enrico Fermi, uh, the top physicist working on it, thought there was about a ten percent chance that when the bomb exploded, it would ignite the atmosphere and the nitrogen in the atmosphere and the hydrogen in the water and destroy all life on Earth. Uh, and he turned out to be to be wrong. We got the 90% rather than the 10%, but uh, these things do uh, do arise every time you're, you're tinkering with a brand new technology of that scale. Um, yeah, it's, it's the... Un- it's, it's the unprecedentedness of it as well. It's not a, cl- a claim that any old science experiment anywhere could do something like this. But if you're creating conditions uh, such as the, the temperatures never before seen on this planet, um, uh, and you know that similar temperatures in the sun uh, will uh, you know, be hot enough to, to fuse nitrogen or hydrogen, you really have to, you know, uh, you know it does raise these possibilities. Uh, and actually, even um, the, the German scientists working on the bomb uh, in Germany, uh, though they never, you know, mercifully developed uh, atomic weapons, they realized this same possibility, and the, this was even elevated all the way up to Hitler. Uh, and there's, you know, there's a record of Hitler sometimes uh, joking about this possibility that uh, that under his reign, you know, his thousand year Reich would would end, you know, with the Earth being destroyed uh, in this atomic fireball. So it was it was kind of crazy, you know, historical situation, uh, but. But even the other side, you know, realized this this possibility, and it's it seems to me uh, insane that they went ahead with this test. Uh, I understand why a lot of the atomic scientists were working on the project back when they thought that Hitler might develop the bomb first and hold the world to nuclear ransom. But by the time they actually did the test, uh, Hitler was dead and Germany had surrendered. Uh, so. And yet they still did this test that uh, had this kind of like this possibility. I think that that overall they thought it was substantially lower than a one in 10 chance of destroying the atmosphere and the whole world. But it was an appreciable, non-eliminable chance. And the report they wrote on it officially, you know, said more research is needed. And yet they went and uh, without any democratic oversight at all, not even from their own government, uh, they went and, uh, and posed that risk uh, just so that they could use nuclear weapons on Japan. Uh, so I, I think that is actually crazy. Uh, and th- there was never any reevaluation of should we go ahead with this, you know, in light of these reasons uh, once uh, Germany had surrendered. Toby, as we close, uh, let me ask you a, a few broader questions. What, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Yeah, uh, I would say, uh, you know, work on big problems. Uh, I think that uh, every small amount of things that we can do helps, uh, but it, you know, it helps by that small amount. Um, and that, that shouldn't be neglected. It's not like zero, but there are, there are possibilities of trying to think about what are the really biggest problems that we're facing, you know, as a, as a country or as, as, 
uh, perhaps everyone in the world, or even the biggest problems humanity is facing in its entire lifespan, and to try to work out are there ways that you could help on those, uh, or are there problems that haven't yet been fully seen by others that you could help to kind of bring to light, uh, and try to, you know, think big is is basically the the advice. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Yeah, this is is. Uh, I used to believe uh, that climate change couldn't destroy us um, uh, because of I, I thought that, you know, people talk about this possibility of something like Venus, this complete, it's called a runaway greenhouse effect, uh, where due to increasing water vapor, um, as opposed to increasing carbon, it's not that you run out of carbon from these stocks, but rather the oceans start to evaporate, creating more and more warming. You know, I used to think that that was known to be impossible uh, on Earth. Uh, and also that the the long-term climate record uh, over millions of years showed that it had been hotter in the past, substantially hotter, and that life had survived and so on. And that that would give us kind of good reason to think that this doesn't pose an existential risk at all. But unfortunately, when I was uh, researching all of this, uh, I've, uh, I've, you know, I was planning on writing a section that, that came to those conclusions. But, you know, the more I got into the science, the more I realized that you know, we haven't quite put to bed this possibility that the uh, that of the ocean starting to evaporate and leading to a kind of increasing amount of warming. Uh, there is there are some good papers saying it can't happen, but you know, a good paper saying something can't happen it is is not any kind of certainty. Uh, and uh, you know, it, it, no one's surprised if a good paper says something can't happen, and three years later another paper says, oh, actually it can, because you missed this kind of interesting detail. Um, so. Uh, you know, the more I looked into it, the more I realized that we we don't know for sure that it could destroy us, but we also don't know for sure that it couldn't. And uh, I think that that possibility is, is still on the table, but it is is by no means a certainty. Uh, but it's uh, it is still perhaps the most significant question about climate change. When are you most happy? Yeah, I, I think uh, time with my daughter. Um, I've got I've got a, a five year old child, and uh, I. Yeah, there's just, uh, you know, things that she'll say or, or if I haven't seen her for a, a while and go to pick her up at school and, and just the joy in her face, uh, you know, embracing with her, uh, that, that's probably my most happy. I, I wouldn't say that I'm always at my most happy <laughs> doing, uh, doing uh, looking after her, but, uh, but I think that's where, where the peak moments are. How do you balance the happiness of your family and I guess particularly your daughter with uh, charitable giving? Uh, giving what, what we can is uh, requires tithing, ten percent of your income. But but I understand that you and Bernadette give a little bit more than that. Um, is that is that hard to do when when you're looking at uh, at, at your child as well? It's it's not so hard. Um, the way that we do it is that that uh, I was already giving uh, substantially more than ten percent. Uh, so that that having a child and giving 10% is not so, uh, not so challenging, but I was, I was doing, uh, trying to give in a way that actually Peter Singer had recommended, uh, which we call with giving what we can, we call it the further pledge to give everything beyond a certain amount. Um, and I set this, uh, a few years back to 18,000 pounds per year, which is about the, uh, uh, the median income in the country. And so, that £18,000 kind of budget is just then a thing that I live within. I basically pretend that my post-tax income is £18,000. Uh, adjusted for inflation, it's now like 22000 or something. Uh, and, uh, and I know that half the country, you know, lives within the, those means. 
Uh, and uh, so it's certainly doable. And I just kind of adjust my expectations uh, to do that. But then when we had a child, we decided that we were kind of making these choices for ourselves uh, and we would let her make her own choices. Uh, and so that we wouldn't count the spending on her as part of that that budget. Uh, so we're still, uh, I think I've just done my taxes because uh, we have our financial year for some reason ends on the 5th of April over here. Um, uh, and that's something where uh, we, like I think this year I ended up giving about uh, 17% of of my income. So it's still comfortably above 10%, uh, but I I could try to kind of carve out a separate domain so that uh, that our choices, our kind of idiosyncratic, but I think important choices on this, but so that they don't affect my daughter directly too much. Uh, so I just have to throw in on the British tax year, having uh, been a co-author of the late uh, Tony Atkinson, uh, it has to do with uh, Britain having used the uh, Julian calendar uh, which uh, were then, uh, then I think had some effect when the trans- calendar transition happened in the uh, in the seventeen hundreds. Anyway, that that's uh, I mean, <laughs> I've looked into this because I was you know as an Australian in Britain, like why the hell is this system? And I, I looked it up. Yeah, the, the full story is like uh, is many many pages long, uh, but it you know it involves even back at the time of Julius Caesar uh, when he moved to the Julian calendar. He asked someone to work out the leap years and they they said it's like every fourth year needs to have an extra day. But the there was an ambiguity in the language where every fourth could be interpreted as uh, as actually every third. And so they put in too many of these and then that compounded over uh, hundreds and hundreds of years to needing to shift the calendar by, yeah, by several months. And then the, uh, the you know, ultimately when that did happen in the Middle Ages, I think, the... Uh, uh, the government decided they still wanted to, you know, get a full 365 days of tax in. And so uh, on the new calendar that ended up, yeah, ending on the 5th, 5th of April. Uh, but it's, <laughs> it's, there's even more bells and whistles. It's, it's actually, it's such a fascinating story. It involves kind of like Augustus's kind of battle with, you know, to, to be remembered as well as his father and kind of changing how many days were in different months in order, and naming them after himself. And, uh, you know, this it's a it's an amazing story that ultimately leads to to why we uh, why we have this stupid tax year. And enjoying stories such as these is uh, is clearly how you're able to uh, uh, step step back from the notion that you've uh, you've capped your income at uh, twenty two thousand pounds a year. <laughs> um, what's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Yeah, I would say probably uh, uh, enjoying a peaceful walk to work every day. Uh, I'm, I'm lucky enough to live uh, uh, near the center of Oxford and uh, it's just it's really beautiful to to see uh, these great works of architecture that people have you know created over hundreds of years uh, you know for for posterity uh, so that that we can all enjoy them now and uh, my parents were architects and I, I have a love of of this and uh, it's something that's uh, yeah really refreshing. It, we also, if I, if I want, I can go along uh, the, the somewhat alarmingly lamed uh, Dead Man's Walk, uh, which is a, a beautiful uh, a beautiful path by the old city wall. Um, I think uh, you know connecting to a graveyard at the time, uh, but but you know and see the the frosts on the meadow or the the autumn leaves and the the cows grazing in the meadows and things like that. Uh, so you can kind of get this mixture of nature and uh, and civilization. It's uh, it's really nice, and I think you know, listen to some beautiful music and yeah, that, that keeps me sane. 
It's so interesting when you talk about both the past and the future. It's the, uh, I get the real sense of kind of equipoise from you that that you think of yourself very much as part of a continuity. And and I guess that comes back to that issue we touched on before of of the discount rate. Um, the idea that that for mm-hmm. you you're very much thinking of. Uh, future well-being as needing to have the same moral value as as current current well-being. Yeah, um, it's interesting. But before writing this book, I would have thought of myself much more thinking about the future rather than the past. Uh, but it, in doing this, it really did make me feel much more connected into the the, the past. And I think that this this ongoing story about where we came from. Um, you know the origins of humanity, and uh, is a is a truly fascinating story that's still having major breakthroughs happen in it uh, in our understanding of this. Uh, and uh, you know it's another great thing. You know anyone who cares about humanity should should feel very excited to be living it at you know a time like probably only a couple of hundred years in which this detective story is all being pieced together. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Yeah, I I think. <laughs> If if I think about like what what have I spent a lot of time on um, over the last few years that wasn't my work, uh, it's I I really like um, uh, you know the NASA photography you know where they, where they take these great photos of Saturn and yes, Jupiter yes. With, the, with the space spacecraft they sent there. I have pale I, I was, blue dots on my office wall. Yeah, well, I was I was downloading some of these uh, these amazing images. Yeah, a couple of them have the Earth as a kind of you know glowing kind of star in the in the background of them. It's, it's quite amazing too. But the uh, uh, there's some beautiful imagery, and I was like, oh, what's the? I want to get the best imagery for Earth as well because I've got all this great kind of Saturn imagery, mm. but I don't have a kind of strong affinity to Saturn. And then I found that all of the Earth images I could get seemed kind of overexposed, or they had various problems with them. Uh, and I, then I found that actually all the recent photographs that spacecraft have taken of Earth have been just on their very kind of start of their journey away from the Earth. Uh, they'll turn around, take a photo, but the, it's not a real photo. It's uh, it's with these image sensors where they use the ultraviolet sensor and they pretend it's blue and they kind of change the colors and it all looks too saturated and things like that. And ultimately, the, the International Space Station's taken a lot of photos, but it's so close to the Earth. Uh, if the Earth were like a um, you know 30 centimeter school globe, uh, the International Space Station, I think, is about half a centimeter away from mm. it, um, and it can't get a proper view at all. Uh, but uh, but it was only the Apollo program where uh, astronauts were at the, the distance from it, where they could get a proper photograph of the Earth. And, and luckily, they took up these Hasselblad cameras, extremely good medium format camera, uh, uh, with uh, Kodak Ektachrome film. So they, they took up some of the best kit of the day that we know that the colors that they got are actually the colors of the Earth and so on. And so I've actually then, <laughs> I, I spent uh, countless nights, uh, I got so into this, I went through all, I think, uh, more than 15,000 images from the Apollo program uh, that they took. Uh, these are all kind of uploaded in kind of obscure places on the internet for, by NASA. Uh, and I went through all of them and found, you know, about the 50 best photographs of the Earth from space, uh, many of which uh, are kind of unknown Uh uh, because the the exposures was quite were quite bad on them and things and and they it it didn't initially look like a good photograph, but I, I put them into you know my um my photography software and did some kind of digital darkroom work on these and managed to to actually restore to life a lot of these great images, uh, including some of the most famous ones. And it was really shocking to me that that two of the most famous images photographs ever taken are um, Earthrise and uh, 
uh, the blue marble. And both of those, uh, if you look at them online or if, if, if NASA, you know, puts out some on their Instagram channel, uh, really kind of, they don't do justice to how good the original image was. Um, and so I was like really happy to be able to create like some of these, the best versions of some of the most famous photographs and also to find some of these really unknown ones. And uh, the plan is uh, in, a, in a few months when I finally finish on this, this epic project uh, to then just release them all uh, to, to everyone everywhere. Um, uh, and, uh, and play some kind of, have some kind of small connection into this, uh, this Apollo program. And, uh, and it's, you know, a lot of the astronauts thought that one of the best things that they did, you know, we, like, uh, we went to, uh, we went to discover the moon, but actually we discovered the earth is one of these famous quotes about it. Uh, so, uh, so that's, that's, that's kind of, uh, where a lot of my free time has gone on this, uh, this quest to, uh, to do justice to these, uh, these old photos. So then is, is one of these images, the image that appears on the cover of the precipice? Yeah, that's that's right. the uh, The U.S. edition uh, is uh, a beautiful image from of an Earthrise from Apollo twelve, uh, which is uh, uh, basically unknown. Uh, it it has a its own kind of code number and so on. And if you type it in the internet, you basically like you know, uh, no one has really discovered that this photo was as good as it was because the original was very overexposed, and I had to do quite a lot of uh, work to to uh, get it back to how it would have looked to the astronauts. So you must be like the only academic who has ever managed to persuade a publisher that you could design your own cover. This is, uh, this is fantastic. Congratulations. That, that, that was a challenge. Uh, <laughs> I was told it was impossible. <laughs> it's always um, been my assumption. But it's, it's a beautiful uh, it is, picture. It is, and I would, uh, it's it's one, yet one more reason people should buy your book. <laughs> Thank you. Um, final question. Uh, which person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Uh, was it Peter Singer or, or someone else? Yeah, I, I would have to say Peter Singer. Um, uh, his, particularly his writings on the ethics of global poverty um, through uh, his, his famous paper, Famine, Affluence and Morality. Uh, if, if anyone Googles Famine, Affluence and Morality, they, you know, they, they can read the original 1970s paper. Uh, and in general, his his thinking about uh, about practical ethics and ways of doing it at a time when it was very unfashionable, um, a lot of moral philosophy was very disconnected from the actual concerns of the earth and and humanity, uh, and on very abstract questions. But uh, but Peter Singer, you know, really kind of uh, showed how you could make very powerful arguments that affect our everyday life, uh, and then also that he he walked the walk on it. Uh, was was really important to me uh, that helped show me that it wasn't just that you can create this kind of amazing argument that actually our obligations are very different to what we intuitively think they are uh, and just treat it as an abstract thing uh, but but that it really shaped what he did with his life and so uh, that made me realize that, that I could I could try a similar thing. Toby Ord's new book is The Precipice, Existential Risk and the Future of Humanity. Toby, thanks so much for the conversation on the Good Life podcast today. Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.